Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Let's read then from Luke 7 and verse 36. And it tells us there, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster jar of perfume And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman And said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we're in a new world, aren't we, with um, the way that we are able to greet one another these days. And it's all a little bit confusing, isn't it? How should we greet one another in our uh, meetings or when we come together? Uh, Do we still give a kind of elbow, you know, uh, shot or or what is it that we do now? Are we able to go back to the good old-fashioned Christian side hug that we used to do, you know, the Christian kind of way of greeting one another or well, what do we do? Well, here we find in this passage that uh, Jesus is at a dinner party and uh, there, is, there are two very contrasting ways that two different characters greet Jesus in this passage. And of course, we're looking at the sinful woman on the one hand and Simon the Pharisee on the other And I would suggest that these two characters and that the way that they treat Jesus is very revealing. And it reveals, in fact, it crystallizes for us in a very dramatic form, the key themes that I think have been there in Luke's gospel up to this point of our reading through Luke's gospel. 
And these are the key points I would, I would draw from it, really, and that's this. Those who truly see Jesus end up as the insiders. Those who don't see Jesus end up on the outside. And further, the key to seeing Jesus is humility. Those who recognize their needs, who don't think that they can save themselves, who know that they need a savior, they're the ones that see the savior. Conversely, those who are arrogant, who don't think that they're ill, who don't think they need a doctor, don't see Jesus for who he is when he is standing in front of them. Little sinners only need a little savior. But Jesus isn't a little savior. Big sinners know they need a big savior and they recognize Jesus as just that. And so they become the insiders, the insiders of the kingdom. So in this evening scene here in Luke 7, we have the apparent insiders, Simon the Pharisee with his religious entourage inside his home. And we have an outsider, the sinful woman lurking in the shadows. And in verses 36 to 39, we see this kind of unfolding event. There's no dialogue in these opening verses. That comes later. And we find that Simon, this Pharisee, has invited Jesus to dinner. We don't know the motives that Simon has. Perhaps he's interested in what Jesus has to say. Perhaps he has some respect for Jesus, but there seems to be a little bit of a sense of suspicion that Simon has towards Jesus. He perhaps is investigating Jesus on behalf of the Pharisee party so he can report back to the council what Jesus has said. Perhaps he's looking for something that Jesus will say that will give evidence against Jesus. We sense that there is a a little bit of a kind of aloofness that comes from Simon in this encounter. He's socially distanced from Jesus. See, we need to understand that in ancient Near Eastern hospitality, ordinarily when someone arrived at your house, you'd put your right arm on their left shoulder, you would kiss their cheek, you would wash their feet, you'd freshen them up with some some oil on their foreheads, and Simon had done none of that. He was distinctly lacking in warmth. There was certainly no over-the-top show of emotions or affection from Simon. Simon subscribed to the treat them mean, keep them keen school of relationships. He was cool as a cucumber. So we have this dinner. And they recline on their left arm facing towards a low table with their legs stretched out behind. This was a formal dinner occasion. And it would have been an open house environment. People were free to wander in and out. It might have even been in a courtyard area of Simon's home. But those who were interested were allowed to come and to listen in on the conversation. Those who are religiously and philosophically minded might gather around to hear, hoping for a lively discussion, a good debate, some great religious insights. And so there's kind of this freedom of movement. But now, 
out of the shadows, someone interposes into the scene who would definitely not be welcome in polite company. Certainly not in this holy company, a sinful woman. Now, Luke spares us her blushes. He neither names her sin or even names her. We don't know exactly what her sin is. I mean, all the commentators say that it would be that she would be a prostitute or an adulterer or that kind of person. But it doesn't actually say. It just says she was a sinful woman. But we must appreciate this. She is a big sinner. You know, her choices in life, whether they've been forced on her, whether she's made those choices, have messed her up big time. You can imagine, can't you, the, the shame and the, the pain and the self-loathing that she must have carried around with her, her sense of guilt towards God, sense of rejection by men who had mistreated her. You know, uh, Hollywood and so on, I mean, certainly used to make out that, that sin has no consequences. You know, that you can just do what you want, jump in out of, out of bed, it doesn't matter, no, no consequences. Not so. You have to live with the pain, and it's not easy to erase. And then one day, this woman had heard Jesus speaking. Now, we see in Luke's gospel that Jesus has spoken on many public occasions, and some, at some point, this woman had heard Jesus. We don't know exactly when. Bishop J.C. Ryle suggests looking at Matthew's gospel account of this, that it may have been when Jesus had uttered the words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Perhaps it was that occasion. Who knows? Maybe she'd heard Jesus several times. But wherever it was, she had come to a point where she realized her need to repent and to believe. The penny had dropped deep in her soul, and she had been saved from her troubled past. The burden had lifted. And now she hears that Jesus is in town at a dinner party with a Pharisee. And so she makes a courageous decision. She is going to pour some of the oil from her little alabaster jar that she carries around her neck as the women did, onto Jesus' feet as an expression of gratitude. You can imagine the scene, can't you? As she approaches, probably disapproving eyes following her as she kneels behind the rabbi and opens the flask. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, uncontrollably, the tears start to flow. She probably didn't plan for this to happen, but... She wipes, she takes her hair down, something that the Talmud tells us that women were not to do in public, uh, but only in their homes. But she takes her hair down and she wipes her, his feet as, uh, to dry his feet. And then all the while she's kissing his feet and pouring this perfume on. We need to understand there is no decorum here. I mean, she's in a bit of a mess, Okay. I mean, her hair is disheveled. If she's got makeup, it's running. She's got red eyes. I mean, this is not some kind of 
inappropriately intimate occasion. She is just in a mess, pouring out her love, her gratitude, and she doesn't care what people think. She doesn't care how she looks. She just wants to show her love, express her gratitude. Just want to comment at this point before we move on in the account that, you know, I think this is so true, isn't it? The more that we are aware of how great Jesus is and how greatly we have been forgiven, the more lavish and the more extravagant and the more unashamed we will be in our worship to him. We'll not stay socially distanced from Jesus, maintaining a stiff upper lip when we understand the gospel. Romans 12 tells us, doesn't it, that our reasonable act of worship in the light of everything he has done for us is to give ourselves, all of ourselves, as a living sacrifice to him. It's only reasonable that we should do that. As it says in that wonderful hymn, you know, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. So, love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. So I suggest that in our everyday lives, there will be evidence in our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions of our love and gratitude to God. And when we gather to worship, surely we will also want to engage wholeheartedly in wonder, love, and praise to our Savior who sacrificed everything for us. I just want to note here, though, that I think it's an interesting thing. This woman made a choice to worship Jesus with her oil, and the emotions kind of followed. The tears came, but they were unscripted and unplanned. She, made an, she took an action first. She made a choice. I'm going to go and thank Jesus with my perfume. And then the emotions followed. And, you know, I don't think we should rely on our emotions. You know, some of us are more emotional people than other people. And some of us, well, all of us have ups and downs with our emotions. We can't control our emotions. We can't turn on a tap and make it happen. It, it's out of our control. And I think sometimes we can be worried that we don't feel enough towards Jesus. But I would suggest to you the right way to go about this is first make a choice. I'm going to worship him because he is worthy. It's my reasonable act of worship. I will worship him. I will attend church. I will choose to stand up. I will I'll sing. I'll engage. I'll I'll do whatever is appropriate. I'll clap, I'll dance, I'll kneel, whatever it is. Whatever seems appropriate. And we don't need to wait for the emotions to come before we choose to do those things. Do you understand? We choose to do these things and let the emotions take care of themselves. They may come or not. But they'll certainly not come if we just are passive and wait for Jesus to come and impress us. And so I'd suggest that... It's a good lesson for us to sort of say, you know what, I am choosing to worship him, to worship your way into worship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you know, do you know what I'm, I'm referring to there? Well, anyway, let's read on in the story because in verse 39, what we find is that Simon is thinking privately to himself. Look, if this man was a prophet, he'd know who, what kind of sinful woman 
this is. And he's thinking to himself, I wondered, I invited him because I was interested to know, but Jesus has just confirmed my suspicions. He clearly is not a prophet. But he hasn't got a clue who this woman is. Anyone with a bit of discernment would know who this woman is. And then Jesus responds in a way that shows that he is not only a prophet, but he is much, much more. For he shows that he not only knows exactly who she is, but also what exactly is going on in Simon's frosty heart. And Jesus sets Simon up beautifully in this passage. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And the language is quite curt. When Simon responds, he says, teacher, speak on. It's kind of like almost, <laughs> I mean, I know this man isn't a prophet. I'm not sure he's got anything to say to me. But sure, go ahead, teacher. Give me what you got. Speak on. Seems to be probably quite a patronizing thing. And Jesus then tells this mini parable with the money lender, uh, two people, 50 denarii, 500 a denarii is a soldier's wage, a day's wage. So we're talking about sort of 50 days wages worth, worth versus 500 days wages. So we're kind of almost two months worth of wages versus two years worth of wages these two different people own. But neither of them could pay. That's the important thing we need to understand. They are both bankrupt. The 50 sinner and the 500 sinner are both bankrupt, neither can pay. Both need grace. But Jesus says, they're both forgiven. Which will, will love more? And now you sense that Simon is beginning to feel the setup is coming around the corner. He doesn't know what it is, but Jesus has dealt with Pharisees before, and he feels rather grudgingly now that he's about to be uh, set up because reluctantly he kind of says, well, I suppose the one with the bigger debt, bingo. And now Jesus delivers the knockout punch. He pulls no punches. He dramatically exposes his host and leaves this judgmental and cold-hearted Pharisee flawed because he compares and contrasts the actions of Simon and the sinful woman. We know it, don't we? Whilst one withheld a kiss, the other won't stop kissing his dirty feet. Whilst one failed to extend the common courtesy of washing feet, the other washed with her tears. Whilst one didn't even apply some cheap oil, she is pouring expensive perfume. And so in verse 47, Jesus explains, her many sins have been forgiven, therefore she loved much. He says it, doesn't it? Therefore, I tell you how many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Note the order here. It's very important that we understand this, okay? It's not that because she is doing all of this, therefore she's now being forgiven. The opposite is true. Because she has been forgiven freely, now she loves freely in response. As Jesus says at the end, your faith has saved you. 
It's not that your actions are saving you. As Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it, um, here was the true explanation. Our Lord told Simon of the deep love which the penitent woman before him had displayed. Her many tears, her deep affection, her public reverence, her action in anointing his feet were all traceable to one cause. She had been much forgiven, and so she loved much. Would the Pharisee know why this woman showed so much love? It was because she felt much forgiven. Would he know why he himself had shown his guests so little love? It was because he felt under no obligation to Jesus. He had no consciousness of having obtained forgiveness, nor any sense of debt to Christ. So, we don't know whether this dinner party ended at this point. <laughs> All right. Dinner's over. Awkward. Or whether Simon did listen. I suspect it was the former, but we don't know. But what we do need to see is that this pattern is the pattern that it, right through church history, it's those who have the greatest awareness of their sin that find the greatest joy. Take Augustine, okay? Augustine, he took a living lover as a, as a sort of, in his early 20s. He had a love child with her. He lived a dissolute life. And then through the prayers of his mother, he met with Jesus. And he became a fully devoted follower of Christ and the greatest theologian of the early church. Or think of John Newton. John Newton, that slave trader, profligate, philanderer, encounters Christ and pens the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's not just the outwardly and obviously big sinners. Take St. Francis of Assisi, a noble saint with an upright background, and yet he says, there is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. Or take the Apostle Paul, okay? Before he met with Christ, religious, above reproach, outwardly, perfect, as a Pharisee, and yet later, as a mature Christian, he confesses to the young Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. You see, sin is, is a bit like carbon monoxide. It's colorless, it's odorless, and yet it's lethal. And we can be unaware of it. And yet, the more mature we become, the more sensitized we become to its dangers. But here's the strange thing. This awareness of our sin doesn't leave us miserable, groveling wretches. It actually frees us to be joyful, confident, and unashamed. 
words. And it leads us to action. It leads us to want to show our devotion to him in our everyday lives, in our serving, in our giving, in the way that we live. It issues in action. Yeah, why am I preaching today? Is it because it's my job? God, have mercy on me if that's the reason why I'm doing it. It's because I want to declare Jesus to people. Because he is wonderful. And why do we serve? Why do we go on rotors? Why do we do anything for God? Surely it must come from a place of gratitude and love. And it leads to wonderful joy. And that's certainly the case with this woman, isn't it? A big sinner finds a big savior and gives a big expression of love and joy. And Jesus affirms to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go into peace. Enjoy the shalom of God. No more shame, no more pain. Freedom and forgiveness and peace. You know that hymn, It is well with my soul, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. So let's come in response today and let's praise the Lord and let's enjoy him because it is a wonderful gospel, isn't it? It is just amazing what he has done for us. He is worthy of extravagant praise and worship in our lives, in every part of our lives that we give ourselves to him. What a wonderful saviour. May God open our eyes to see his greatness and to see the greatness of his grace towards us. May we pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. We don't want to be half-hearted. We want to be wholehearted for you because of the incredible sacrifice that you have done for us. May we, may we be full of love for you and may that love issue in action. Oh God, may we not be just caught up with all the activities of the Christian life, but may we have an intimacy with you. May we have an affection with you. May we enjoy you personally. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.